Good evening. Uh, some people have said to me that you've brought the weather from the UK. I said that's not true. If it was true, then you'd be enjoying 28 degrees. So it's not true that I brought weather from the UK. Uh, as Kate said, I've got uh, three children of my own. Uh, I think I'm kind of getting to the end of what it means to be a parent. But my father tells me that the first 50 years of being a parent is the hardest. It gets much easier after that. And I think that when I'm over 50, you won't believe I'm not over 50, but when I'm over 50, I think he will extend that age. Not so. Because parenting is not easy. And we've discovered that when we have children, we don't, they don't come with the instruction manual. Uh, except that we do tonight realize that there is actually an instruction manual. And I want to echo what Kate said, that there will be those of you who don't have children, and those of you who may never have children, so that if you're a part of a church, then you do have children. Because they say it takes a village to raise a child. And what I'm going to be saying to you tonight is it takes a church to raise a Christian. And so you will all have a a role to play uh, in terms of the spiritual nurture of children uh, within this community. I'm going to be presenting some material, then there'll be an opportunity for you to uh, engage and have some questions afterwards. Um, So let's just think about uh, parenting. Uh, I'm not claiming to be an expert, I'm claiming to come and share some of God's wisdom from His Word, and then obviously it's going to depend on your particular context and your culture and the age of your children, how you implement these principles, and some of the ways in which you implement these principles will change as your children, as they go through the different stages, from being young children to, you know, older children and teenagers, and it looks different. You keep, you keep changing the way you do things, but the principles remain the same. So that's what we're trying to explore tonight. I'm going to show you a little bit of a fun clip just to get us into things, and uh, we'll see how we can go from there. <laughs> oh, this one, We got his A-level results. Oh, tell me the worst. Oh, no, 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 it's great news. He got what he needed. Let me see, let me see. English A, <laughs> Mathematics A, <laughs> Physics A, Chemistry A. <laughs> What is this? What? Ah, 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 ah. What he, he got a B in classical studies. He got a B? <laughs> it doesn't matter. What do you mean it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter. My son got a <laughs> B. <laughs> it's only one. Still, it's a B. He could have got all A's. Mr. Sinha's son got all A's. But my son had to get a B. Mr. Sinha's son only did two A-levels. Our son did five in one sitting. He's the first in his school ever to do that. Really? Yes. Then he is going to school full of idiots. How am I going to keep my head up in the community? Hmm? My son got a B. He got the grades to do medicine at Cambridge. He is doing medicine at Cambridge? Yes. Idiot! He should be doing PhD. You don't like to do a postgraduate without a degree. I know. That's why I was telling him to do his degree in his spare time. <laughs> what is wrong with him, huh? Mr. Khanna's son is getting BSc. My son is only doing A-levels, eh? Too busy playing football. He got into the Millwall first team. Millwall, Millwall, Millwall. Mr. Rowan's son is getting into Liverpool. But my son can only get a place in Millwall. He will bring shame to the family. But Liverpool wouldn't give him a trial. And why is that? Because he's six.
first thing I want to say to you tonight is that parenting is not a competitive sport. And yet you may be forgiven, be forgiven to think that it is a competitive sport the way that people carry on. And I think we, the first thing we need to acknowledge this evening is that we've got to abandon what I call the cult of comparison when it comes to parenting and our children. Uh, we start comparing children from a very early age. You know what it's like when you've had a child. People start asking questions. The first question is, are they sleeping through? And you know that if you're fortunate that your child is sleeping through, you better not mention it because everybody will hate you that your child is sleeping through and theirs is not. And then we ask, start asking all kinds of other questions, you know. Is the child rolling over? Is the child walking? Is the child speaking? Is the child getting a PhD? And I want to say to you, if you hear nothing else tonight, can you please stop comparing your children? Can you please stop comparing your children with other children? Can you please stop comparing your parenting styles with other parenting styles? Can you please even stop comparing your children within the same family? Because every single child has been uniquely crafted by God in their mother's womb. And they are unique individuals. And every child, we've got three very, very different children. They've all responded very differently to different forms of discipline. They all have different interests and different abilities. Uh, and no two are the same. So if you hear nothing else tonight, could we just stop the cult of comparison? Parenting is not a competitive sport. The Lord has given you the child that he has given you, and he's entrusted them to you, and you are to curate what God has given you. And you are to adapt and to change and to be the adult in the relationship and to, to, to help them to know and love the Lord. I want to give you three words as we get going this evening. The first is ambition. Who does not have ambition for their children? Surely we've all got ambition for our children. The question is, what kind of ambition do we have for our children? Is it to provide them with a good education? Is it to provide them with a stable home? Is it to give them everything that we never had? You often hear parents saying that. I just want to give my children everything that I never had. And sometimes we become so obsessed with providing for our children everything that we never had that we never stop to think whether we actually ever needed those things that we never had. What would your life be like if you were given everything that you never had? Would it be different? Would you be the same person? Would you be the same character? Just think about that. Do your children really need all those things that you never had growing up? The second word is baggage. We all have baggage. We bring baggage into our marriages and we bring baggage into our parenting. That's just how it is. And we are very, very heavily influenced by the way that we've been parented or not parented. And it has a negative impact. Sometimes we respond by mimicking those things that even we hated growing up. Uh, I recall that there were certain things that my father would say to us, and I thought to myself, I will never say those things to my children. And then, you know, a funny thing happens. You find yourself in the heat of the moment with your child, and words come out of your mouth, and you look behind you to see if your father's standing behind you, because it's even in his voice. <laughs> that you hear your own voice repeating those things. We repeat mistakes. Sometimes we go the opposite way. We try to compensate by doing the opposite. Uh, that's certainly true of my wife. Uh, she had a mother who used to discipline them through ignoring them. She was a horse trainer, so she was a, sort of one of these horse whisperer types. And if the children did wrong, she would actually literally ignore them. It was once when Kim had broken a pot 
And her mother found out and she did not speak to her or acknowledge her presence in any way, shape or form for two solid weeks. So how does my wife respond? Well, she does the opposite now. She's constantly trying to keep channels of communication open with our children in a crazy way. Uh, I sometimes lose patience and say, we've had enough now. The children just need to obey. We're going to close discussions. There's no need to negotiate any further. But you see, she's responded in that way because of the way that she was parented. And it's worth you thinking about that for yourself. How were you parented and how are you responding? Are you perpetuating these bad things or are you responding in the opposite way, you know, which may well be good but may well be detrimental? And how do you as a couple do this? Uh, what is the way, the different ways in which either of you were parented? How does that impact how you, how you parent and what your expectations are for each other within the parenting relationship? So ambition and baggage, and the final word is direction. There's a great uh, psalm that says, Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, I think it's very important that we engage with biblical metaphor, okay? We, he's been giving it a picture here. The picture is of an archer who has arrows in his quiver. And just like an archer or someone at war would want a lot of arrows in his quiver, so the psalmist is saying, blessed is the man who has many children in his quiver. And I think we need to engage a little bit with the metaphor. I don't know if you've ever done any archery. My brother at one point had a compound bow, which was a lot of fun to play with in his back garden. Uh, and it's interesting, archery, archery is a very interesting thing, you see. You, you pull the string back and you aim, and then you release the arrow. And how well you have aimed actually only becomes evident in the future. So, so when you actually go up to the target to see where you have aimed, where the arrow has landed, uh, is an indication of how well you've aimed over here. And a small movement here makes a very big difference over there. But the reality is that we need to be aiming. And I think parenting is a lot like that. Parenting is simply us taking these arrows that God has given us and we are aiming them in a particular direction. And the reality is that once you let that arrow go, you no longer have control over its flight. And there are many other factors that will come to play. There's a thing called gravity that will make the arrow fall. There's a thing called wind that will push it to one side. And that is the reality with our children. As our children are growing up in our homes, that is us pulling the bowstring back and aiming them in a particular direction, and then we are unleashing them on the world. And there will be a lot of things that happen to them in the world that affect their flight and affect their faith. And many of those things we don't have control over. But we do have control over whether or not we are aiming. You see, you can't pull a bow like this and shoot it up randomly in the air and hope it's going to hit the target over there. Unless you have actually specifically trained that arrow on the target and then released it, you're not really, you're not really doing archery. And I, so I think it's a wonderful picture of parenting. Because I think there is so much that happens to our children in this world over which we have absolutely no control. And when you release them on the world, you've got no control. They become independent spirits. They do their own thing. They are sinners in their own right. They do stupid things. And you are not responsible for those things. But your responsibility is to take aim. So how do we take aim? Well, this is the biblical mandate for parents. 
This is what God calls parents to do in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, Yero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. That is the command. That is the mandate for parents. The parents are to pass on the commandments of God to their children. That is a parental responsibility. And it's not just bringing them to church on a Sunday. He's saying in all of life, when you rise up, when you go along the path, speak to them about the things of the Lord. Take the opportunities that the world provides us to speak to our children. He uses a strong word there. He says you are to impress them upon your children. When you impress something, it leaves a mark. It leaves an impression. That's the point. It's a deliberate action to leave an impression. So many parents these days are, you know, it sounds very mature and wonderful to say, you know, I I don't want to force my children in any way. (laughs) I want them just to make their own decision, to decide for themselves. It It sounds wonderful. It sounds so mature. But we don't do that when they've got a raging fever at three o'clock in the morning, do we? You don't take the little sweetheart with a raging fever to the medicine cabinet and say, my darling, which medicine would you like? Would you like the strawberry flavored one? The banana flavored one? Which one do you want? Oh, that one's a little bit bitter. It's probably the best thing for your fever, but you know, it's a little bit bitter, so maybe you shouldn't have that one. Do you do that? No, you don't. No, let's be honest. <laughs> at risk of being arrested for child abuse. Sometimes it takes two parents to get the medicine down the throat, doesn't it? You pin the child down, you block the nose so the mouth goes open, you suck up that syringe and you squirt that stuff to the back of the mouth and you put your hand over until they swallow. They're either going to drown in Kelpol or they're going to survive the evening. That's how it is. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we ram the gospel down our children's throats in that way. But my dear friends, we know that the only hope for our children in life and death is the Lord Jesus Christ. That when Jesus says that he is the way and the truth and the life, that there is no other way to the Father except through him, that there is no other truth, no other life, Jesus is the only way. And so we've got to be giving our children Jesus. And it's, 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 a, it's a life or eternal death situation. So we've got to be giving them the gospel. They don't know what's good for them. We do by the grace of God. And so we've got to be impressing these things upon our children. Note there he says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Now we don't want to be like Orthodox Jews who have a very small copy of the Torah tied to their heads. Who walk around with wristbands that have... You know, the Torah tied to their hands. That's not what he's talking about. Don't take this literally. Okay? I think it's the same for the mark of the beast, to be honest with you, in Revelation. When he talks about marks on our hands and on our foreheads, what is he saying? Well, he's saying everything that we think and everything that we do. That's all it is. Everything that we think should be about God and Jesus. It should define our worldview. Everything that we do with our hands. You don't all have to have that wonderful verse from Joshua on your doorframe of your houses. <laughs> it's not saying you have to have a scripture on your doorframe. 
He's saying that when you walk through your home, I should know that this is a home where Jesus Christ is Lord. It should be abundantly clear in that home. And by your thoughts and your actions, you should show that you are subject to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Can I encourage you to think about ways in which in everyday conversation, you could speak about the wonders of God. You know, when you're talking to a toddler about a flower, not just saying it's a pretty flower, isn't it wonderful how God has made this flower? Praise God for this flower. When you see injustice in the world, could you comment about the fact that God will one day bring justice and fairness? Could we talk about these things as we walk along the road? Could we make a deliberate effort to impress the gospel upon our children? What is the God-given role of parents? Well, there's a whole lot of verses over there. I'll ask, I'll ask them to email them out to you if you don't have this in an outline. But if you had to go through all those verses and just read, they're really just all verses that teach about how children come to know about God or how they should come to know about God. And the reality is that, that this is what it says. Deuteronomy 4, it's parents and grandparents. I made the grandparents gray. Okay? Parents and grandparents make known. Deuteronomy 6, parents are teaching. Deuteronomy 6 again, parents are explaining. Do you see where this is going? Deuteronomy 11, it's parents teaching. Deuteronomy 32, parents are to command. Psalm 78, I've said congregational teaching because the Psalms was basically a hymn book. So as you sing these praises to God uh, collectively, you are teaching. Proverbs 1, it's parents instructing and teaching. Specifically in Proverbs 4, it's the father who is teaching. Proverbs chapter 6, it is parents who are to command and teach. Proverbs 22, it is parents who are to train for salvation. Ephesians chapter 6, once again, it's it's, uh, congregational teaching. I take it that when it says children obey your parents, as that, that letter was read out in the church on that Sunday, that was the sermon for the day. I take it the children weren't, weren't in a Sunday school. I take it they were there present as the letter is read out from Paul and he says parents obe- uh, children obey your parents. It's the same in Colossians 3.20. In Ephesians 6, it's a father specifically who teaches. In the life of Timothy, we see that his mother and his grandmother both had a profound influence on his understanding of the gospel. You know, Paul says to Timothy, How from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. It's as though Timothy was taking in the gospel with his mother's milk. So you can see that the picture is pretty clear there. The overwhelming responsibility is for parents. Parents are the ones who are given the responsibility. And yes, grandparents have an influence as well, and the community, the church, has an influence as well. And that's how God has planned for things to be. God has placed children into families, and he has placed Christian families into local churches. That is the economy of God. That's how he has set things up to work. And so parents are primarily responsible, but they are not solely responsible. So that's a comfort, really. So you are primarily responsible, but you are not solely responsible because God in his grace has given you a church. So what then is the role of the church? Well, Ephesians chapter 4 says the following. says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness 
of Christ. What is the role of the church? The role of the church is to equip God's people for works of service, for the work of ministry. It's the role of the pastor-teacher. That's sort of, there's no, there's no definite article in the Greek. It's not a pastor and a teacher. It's the pastor-teacher. I take that to mean full-time church workers. I take it to mean the likes of Royden, who comes up here and preaches and equips you for works of service. It's not for the, the church staff to do the works of ministry. It's for you to do the works of ministry. They are to be more of a coach than they are to be a bus driver with people complaining about how they're driving at the back. Occasionally they'll take the ball and show you what to do with the ball, but the idea is that you are playing the ball, you are playing the game. They're encouraging you to do so. And when it comes to ministry, the reality is that it comes to being a parent, your ministry is your children. You know, The day you become a parent, <laughs> you become a Bible teacher of children. You start doing children's ministry, whether you like it or not. Uh, gentlemen, that, that is something you've got to take very seriously. The day you get married, you become responsible for your wife. To present her to Christ as a beautiful bride, without spot or wrinkle or blemish on the day of judgment. So that is the role of the church. The role of the church is not to educate your children spiritually. It's there to support you and to help you. But at the end of the day, you are the ones who are to be doing the work of ministry. In this outstanding book on Christian youth work, which I think is actually misnamed because I think it's got a lot to do uh, with children's ministry. It's the book that I've gleaned the most from in terms of quotes on children's ministry. It's really a theology of children's ministry. Mark Ashton and, and Phil Moon write the following. They say, it has been said that churches have concentrated too much on trying to evangelize other people's children and too little on helping Christian parents bring up their own children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I think that's true. I think it's very easy to spend a lot of time and energy and put on a holiday club and invite children in and spend time evangelizing other children. I think that's a very simple thing to do. There's a sense in which children are low-hanging fruit for the gospel. But how much time and energy, and this is for us to think about as a church, how much time and energy do we put into helping the adults in our congregation to be bringing their children up in the fear and instruction of the Lord? And the reality is that God has structured things this way because it just makes sense, doesn't it? Your children breathe for 168 hours a week. Okay, That's how long they breathe for. A fair bit of that time is spent at school, which we are often very grateful for. Uh, a good amount of that time is spent sleeping, and that's normally the best time, because children are really, really lovely when they're asleep. And the rest of the time, they're with you. They've got access to you in some way, shape, or form. And then they come to church on a Sunday, and if you're lucky, they've got an hour of input. Maybe half an hour. Maybe it's half an hour on a Friday, I don't know, or a Sunday, an hour of input. I, I calculate that roughly it's 1%. So 1% of their waking life is in the church community. The rest of the time is with you. I estimate probably 35% of their time is with you. So you have the capacity for the greatest influence of your children. Some people come to me and they say, oh, I wish you could sort this out with my child at a Sunday school. And I say, well, you're expecting me to achieve in 1% of their life what you are failing to achieve in 35% of their life. That's just a little bit unfair, really. So God has set it up that the primary disciples are parents. 
But there is a disconnect between what parents know to be true and what parents are actually doing. And so Barna has conducted much research uh, throughout the Christian world. And they conclude that parents believe that they are to be the primary disciples of their children. 85% of parents know that it is their responsibility primarily to disciple their children and instruct them in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. And yet only 11% actually actively, proactively do anything about that in any given week. Okay, So there's a big disconnect between those two. So why is it? Why is it that 85% of parents know what they should be doing, but only 11% are doing that? I think there's, there's many reasons for that. I think there's a, there's a busyness in life. There's a feeling of inadequacy, perhaps. Not sure what they're meant to be doing, which is why the church should be helping them to understand what they should be doing. Uh, but I do think that we've got to work hard to give the ball back to the parents. I do think that the church has to really say, you know what, you've outsourced this for long enough. It is actually your responsibility we're going to give the ball back to you. There's a sense in which the church has enabled parents to not proactively disciple their children. And we've done things to try and help. We've tried to be helpful. You know, we, we have wonderfully qualified children's workers they come with master's degrees in theology. And we sort of think to ourselves, well, I'll leave it to the professionals to do this. A few hundred years ago, we outsourced the secular education of our children to the state. And so we feel that we can outsource the spiritual education to the church. And what you all came to discover during the pandemic is that homeschooling is quite hard. Yeah, you discovered that, didn't you? You also discover that maybe the problem with your kids' grades is not the teacher anymore. Maybe it is actually your child. Yeah? And I want to say to people that spiritual home education is, not something, is something that you've got to do for all of life. Because that is what God has given you to do. So I think there's a sense in which the church has enabled apathy. And I think there's a sense in which parents feel that they can't compete with the local children's worker. And just now, in a, in a little while, I explain to you why I think... Um, we should change our thinking on that. So, the first thing I want us to think about is how do we connect with our children? Okay, If we know that we need to be doing this, how do we go about doing this? What does this look like in practice for the average parent? Well, can I say to you, the first thing you need to do is to pray for and with your children. I hope that you are praying for your children. Not just, not just praying for their situation, but praying for their soul. Praying, acknowledging that they are sinners in their own right. That they are born into this world under the wrath of God. That they face an eternity separated from God unless he rescues them by his grace. Are you praying for your children to be converted? Are you praying for God to do that miracle in their life that is necessary for them to put their trust in Jesus? Are you doing that? Are you pleading with God that he would do that? Secondly, are you praying with your children? You see, I think prayer is something which is caught, not necessarily taught. As we pray with our children, we are showing them where we see our priorities in life. We show our dependence upon God for all that we have and all that we need and all that we do. We should be praying for our children. We should be praying with our children. They should know that you are people who depend fully upon God for all that you have and all that you need in this life. Secondly, will you read the Bible with your children daily? 
Will you read the Bible with your children? Now, this is where it gets scary, especially if you know that the children's worker in the church is a master's degree student who just come from Bible college and a brilliant theological mind. And they come up and they do a children's talk on the stage, complete with amazing props. And it's just brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. In fact, you learn so much theologically from this person doing this wonderful presentation on stage. And then you say to yourself, am I expected to do that at the breakfast table every morning? And the answer is no. You're not expected to do that at the breakfast table every morning. You see, I imagine that, that you sometimes have family gatherings. I mean, a Christmas, a Christmas gathering. Do you have a, a special meal at Christmas? The extended family all come around. We all pretend to love each other on that particular day. Someone has lovingly prepared a meal, perhaps planned a week in advance, and you know, carefully cooked the meal and lovingly prepared the meal. And you sit down and you feast together as a family, don't you? Well, that's what a church service is. That's what a Sunday school lesson is. That's someone who has spent the week digging into God's word, carefully preparing God's word so that what they dish up for you as a gathered community, as the extended community of God's people, is a wonderfully nourishing meal. But you don't have that meal every single day. You have it when the family gathers. What do you feed your child every day? Well, you give them a bowl of porridge or a slice of toast and you send them to school, don't you? That's what you do. But you do that every day because you know that unless they have something every day, they will not survive. And so really all that God is asking you to do is to give your children a daily slice from the bread of life. And this is something that anybody can do. Anybody can pick up Mark's gospel and I call it reading between the headlines. You know, the Bible's helpfully given you some bold headings. Could you read the five or six verses between the headlines? Could you pick out one thing wonderful we learn about Jesus and give thanks for that? Could you do that? How long would that take? Does it take an hour of preparation? It need not take any preparation at all. You could show your children that you are learning together. Is there one thing in this passage that excites you about Jesus? Let's give thanks to God for that. It needn't take five minutes. It may, it may. You may enjoy it so much that it takes much longer, but it needn't take more than that. Raise your hands if you'd like to double your children's understanding of who God is. Yeah, Hannah? Okay, most of you. I'm hoping all of you. Some of you are just a bit too shy to put your hand up. If they're getting an hour of input from the church, could you give them an hour through the rest of the week? Could you give them 10 minutes a day, six days a week? Just something, just a little something every single day. A little slice from the bread of life. We're not looking for a roast dinner. We're looking for something to sustain them each day. Third thing, could you please model relationship and not religion? Okay, model relationship and not religion. We have a relationship with God. It's not a religion. Religion says I pray five times a day the same words facing a particular direction. That's religion. It's empty. It's hollow. It's meaningless. Religion is you taking that dated daily devotion, which you skipped yesterday, and feeling compelled to read both today. That is religion. That is not relationship. 
I call my parents once a week. If I skip a week, it doesn't mean I call them twice the next week. Because that's not how relationships work. Sometimes when we speak, there's a lot to say. Sometimes there's only a little bit to say. That's the nature of prayer. Sometimes there's a lot to say. Sometimes there's only a little to say. But the point is that we are communicating. So can we model relationship and not religion? Could we model repentance and faith and not hypocrisy? What does it mean to model repentance and faith with your children? Well, it means that I'm showing them that I'm a sinner saved by grace, dependent totally upon the blood of Jesus for my salvation, and that I am someone who gets it wrong. I've got to model to my children what it means to admit my sin and seek forgiveness. If I don't do that, they will never know what that looks like. And so there are times when I need to apologize to my children. There's a generation who believe that you never apologize to a child. There there are certain cultures that believe that if I apologize to a child or admit that I've done wrong, that I lose my authority. And both of those are absolutely wrong. In a room this size, given statistics, there will be some of you who were hurt by an adult when you were a child. Perhaps in 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 a terrible way. An adult who never apologized or admitted the wrong that they had done to you. Can I ask you, if you think about that person now, what do you think of them? If that person had apologized, if they had admitted that they had wronged you and sought forgiveness, would you think more of them now or less of them now? I guarantee you would have thought more of them. We never think less of people who have the courage to admit that they are wronged And seek forgiveness. And I find that I'm apologizing to my children all the time. And it's necessary and it's right. And I want to say to you that if you've got children who are even grown up and perhaps out of the house. And there's an apology which you have left unsaid. That this is a classic case of better late than never. It is never too late to say to your children. I've wronged you. I'm sorry please forgive me. To model repentance and faith in that way is a remarkable thing to do. And in that way, we don't breed hypocrisy. There is no bitterness. I think that's what Paul is talking about. Do not embitter your children, he says to the fathers. Don't be the hypocrite. Be the one who models the gospel and be prepared to say sorry. Could you spend time with your children? Are you spending time with your children? Some people say, you know, I don't get to spend quantity time with my children. We only do quality time in our family. It all sounds very, very nice. (laughs) Does that actually work? Are you able to schedule time in your Outlook diary for quality time with your children? I mean, they've all got these fancy devices these days. Are you able to send your five-year-old a notification on their iPad to say scheduled quality time? I've got 15 minutes between when I get home from the office and you go to bed. We'll do quality time then. Uh, I used to find that when I came in from the office, uh, uh, the, you know, my daughter was too busy playing with her Barbie dolls to be bothered about quality time with me. This is a picture of a mind dump. It's in the town that I was born in, Krugersdorp, Mukhali City, 
It's a mine dump. The whole town's basically hollow. It's like most of Johannesburg. It's all now sitting above the earth. You got any idea how much iron ore you've got to bring, or gold ore you've got to bring to the surface to produce 28 grams of gold? Anyone? Anyone in mining here? Any idea? I'm told that it's between two and 90 tons of ore to produce 28 grams of gold. That's that's quite a lot, isn't it? That's why we've got mine dumps all over Johannesburg. And it's a reminder to us that unless we are prepared to mine the quantity, we will never, ever get the quality. Unless we give the quantity of time to our children, we will never mine the golden nuggets with them. That is how it is. Because you cannot schedule quality time with your child. It comes in the craziest of moments. So make space and make time just to be with them. I used to take the kids with me on a Saturday. We're going to the local DIY store, like a builder's warehouse type thing. I'd make a point of taking some children with me. It's much quicker to get the shopping done without children, let's be honest. But there's time in the car, there's time there. I especially want to do, you know, we've got three children, they're very different in personality. There will always be a child that dominates in the relationship. There will always be one who's a lot quieter. If you, if you take turns with those children to take them with you, even the ones who are quiet get opportunities to speak. And it's in those moments that I find putting out the quantity time that the golden moments come. We were forced to move uh, further away from church. Uh, we're committed to our local church, but you know it's a 30-minute drive now. It's not five minutes. And I've discovered the joy of a 30-minute drive with teenagers. Because when you pick them up from youth group and you say, how was youth? My teenagers have discovered that it takes a lot longer to say fine uh, in 30 minutes. You've got to find some other stuff to talk about. Because <laughs> we've got 30 minutes together in the car to discuss and to engage. Could you make time with your children? And when you are spending time with your children, can I ask you, are you there present with them in the moment? Or are you distracted in some way? Is your mind elsewhere? Are you there with them? Now, now it's hard to engage in a conversation with a five-year-old, isn't it? It's hard to make conversation with the five-year-old. It really is. But it is my experience that unless you are prepared to engage them in conversation at the age of five, don't ever think that they're going to speak to you beyond the age of 16. Don't expect you to all of a sudden have a wonderful relationship where you're relating. You've got to make the space when they are younger. You've got to model this when they are younger. For us, our family meal time is our time to connect. We don't have screens at the table. We don't eat in front of the TV. Our dinner time is where we connect as a family. I've had to teach my children that meal time is not just about getting food into your gob. It's about connecting as a family. That's where we connect as a family. That's where we spend time discussing with each one what was good today, what was bad today, what was ugly today. We go around the table, we share. We're at the stage now, our children are slightly older, where you know we could spend an hour or more at the dinner table, long beyond when we've all finished our meal, except our youngest. He's a painfully slow eater. Okay? We're not really waiting for him to finish. We're just enjoying company together. I say to families, you should be spending a meal time every single day together. 
For me, that changed as, as the children grew up. There was a time when I was working closer to home and we would have breakfast together. That was a possibility. That's not, probably not the possibility in Johannesburg, let's be honest. But as the children have grown up, that has changed. Now it's become the evening meal. But we connect together. We spend time together. Are you spending time with your children? When you are with them, are you with them? Last thing I want to say on connecting with children is think about your children's spiritual development. You'll certainly be thinking about your child's academic development and their sporting achievements. I've got no doubt about that. We have all kinds of things like parents' evenings where we go in to grill the teacher as to why our children's not doing as well as they should be doing. Um, We're thinking about their progress academically. You're thinking about their progress physically and sporting-wise. But I want to encourage you to think about your children growing spiritually. Are you thinking about that? Are you thinking about their character developing in a godly way? So what does that look like? What does it look like? What are the signs... Sorry, this is a... What are the signs of spiritual maturity? Listen to what Paul writes here to the Corinthians. He says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you were still not ready. You were still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? I hope you can sense the frustration in Paul's writing. He's hoping to write to a church that's meant to be spiritually mature, but he discovers they're very, very immature. They're childish. They're behaving like children on the playground. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. That's like, my dad drives a BM, my dad drives a Mercedes-Benz. It's that level of argument going on. He says, you're childish, grow up. He wants them to grow up. So it's talking about their thinking. They need to grow up in their thinking. So surely that is a sign of spiritual maturity, that our thinking about who God is is changing. It's, it's growing. It's not that we're going to believe in a totally different God by the end of our lives, but it means that we are viewing God in higher and higher resolution. It's like the sculptor who takes a block of marble and begins to shape the sculpture. Uh, he knocks off the rough edges. It's the same block of marble, but it's in high definition by the time he's finished and it's polished. And that is the case with God. We come to understand who God is in Christ. We study the scriptures. We spend a lifetime changing in our understanding of who God is. He becomes higher and higher resolution for us. We are being renewed in our minds. That's one of the signs of spiritual maturity, that we are growing in our understanding of who God is. And not only does our mind change and get challenged, not only do we understand more and more about who God is, but our behavior changes as well. Because right thinking about God should lead to right living before God. Okay, Those two things should always be connected. And Paul does that in his epistles. For the most part, in most of his epistles, he's addressing wrong practice in the church by first addressing theology in the church. Now, it's not always the case like that, but it's often the case like that. So mostly, the first half of Paul's letters is theology, and the second half is theology applied. So as our mind changes about who God is, as we are renewed in our minds, it should affect our behavior. Are you seeing that in your children? Are you looking for that in your children? 
And as you're thinking about your children's behavior, are you trying to look behind and say, well, what is the spiritual thing that they're not getting that is causing this behavior? Okay? Because at the end of the day, uh, you can't teach morality to children for the sake of morality. Their minds have got to be changed. Their hearts have got to be changed by the gospel to produce the change in behavior. So just think about your child's behavior. What aspect of their behavior are, they, are you struggling with? What is it that needs work? How can we take the truth about God and apply it to that particular behavior so we can change the mind, change the heart, and change the behavior? Do people have a thirst for God's word? That is a sign of spiritual maturity. People who crave God's word. 2 Peter says that we should crave God's word like a newborn baby craves spiritual milk. We should be longing for God's word because it's by God's word that we are nourished and we grow spiritually. And if God's word is the primary way in which he speaks to us, then we've got to respond to him and we do so in prayer. And our prayers really ought to reflect what we've learned from God. So if what we've learned from the Bible is one side of the conversation, then the other side of the conversation is me speaking back to God. And it should look like that. And that's what you want to try to model for your children. So you've read something in the Bible this morning. Can you say something back to God in your prayer that says, I've heard what you've said? Because that's how relationships work, isn't it? So, so Kate's over here and she says to me, I say, Kate, how's it going? She says, actually, it's not really going very well. I've got a doctor's appointment tomorrow. There's something that I'm very, very concerned about. What would you think if the next words out of my mouth were, it's quite cold today, isn't it? And yet how often is that the case in our adult Bible studies? You've just heard an amazing word from the Lord. You've been taught from his word and then it comes to prayer time and we're hearing all kinds of random stuff. Could you pray for the woman on the third floor at uh, at work who I don't really know what her name is, but her cat was run over and she's very upset. Could we pray for her? And I'm like, what? (laughs) You've just heard from the God of the universe and you're talking about dead cats. Could we learn to get real with this stuff? Could we teach our children that the response to God's word is that we pray? That's a sign of spiritual maturity. Another sign of spiritual maturity is fellowship, a love for God's people. Deep fellowship. We seem to be attracting people in the UK who are telling us that they don't go to church, but they're Christians. The Bible's got... The Bible doesn't know about solitary Christians. The spirit who calls us to Christ is a spirit that calls Christians together. That's how it is in the Bible. Being a Christian is more like playing on a football team than it is like playing golf. When you're playing golf, you're playing your own game. When you're on a football team, you do it together. You can't say to me, I say, what sport do you play? You say, I play football. I say, what team do you play for? You say, I don't play for a team, I just kick goals. Well, you're not playing football, you're just fooling yourself. So being part of a church and a church community and loving the church family is absolutely critical to the Christian life. And it's a sign of spiritual maturity, it's a commitment to the fellowship. And when we have fellowship, when we have opportunities to spend time together, there will always be works of service. You see, when we're together, someone's always got to put out the chairs. Someone's got to pack away the chairs. Someone's got to make the coffee. Someone's got to pack it away. That's a sign of spiritual maturity, isn't it? 
to walk into a room and say, what is the one job here that no one else is prepared to do? I'll do it. That's what Jesus did. He walked into a dinner party and said, what is the one job that no one is prepared to do? Ah, that's right, no one's washed feet, I'll do it. Are you modeling that for your children? You come to church on a Sunday? Is there opportunities for service? Are you taking your children alongside you to serve? Are there pamphlets that need to be picked up? Christchurch Midrand is famous for reams of paper on your chairs. Have you stopped that? Or is that... You have? Oh, what a shame. What a shame. It was the number one opportunity for children to serve was to pick up reams of paperwork. We were never accused of not communicating. So that's a good thing. Are there other jobs that your children could do with you at church? Could you model for them what it means to love the body of Christ and to serve the body of Christ? Another sign of spiritual maturity is evangelism. You see, when, when Jesus calls the disciples, he says, come and follow me and, and what? <laughs> and I will make you fishers of men. So part of being a disciple is calling other people to be disciples. You can't actually be a disciple unless you are calling disciples. Evangelism is intrinsic to discipleship. You can't separate the two. Now, I say the word evangelism and you, you think to yourself, my name's not Billy Graham. And that's true. Billy Graham was a confrontational evangelist. There's many other ways of doing evangelism. Paul was an intellectual evangelist. He argued the gospel. The woman at the Samaritan woman at the well was an invitational evangelist. She went to call people. She didn't confront them. She didn't argue with them. She called them to meet Jesus. Invitational evangelists. You get service evangelists. I think my wife's a service evangelist. She was, until he died, our 95-year-old neighbor, Philip, would come to Kim to have his socks changed. We often wished that he would come more often than once a week. She used to take him shopping as well to the local supermarket. Philip had uh, bowel cancer. He was double incontinent. I won't explain exactly what that means. But I had to clean the car seats every week. When you are, are, are bent down there changing an old man's socks, you can say anything you like to him about the gospel. He's coming back next week. <laughs> she would say things to him like, Philip, the only problem with our relationship is that it's not going to last beyond the grave. Because <laughs> you don't trust Jesus. Philip, Easter's coming up. It's a very, very important time in the church calendar. Have you thought about going to church? <laughs> Philip will be back next week. Service evangelism. Okay, so different ways of doing evangelism. But the point is we're calling people to Jesus. Okay? Are we modeling that? Are we showing that to our children? So just some signs of what it might look like for spiritual maturity. These are the kinds of things I'm looking for in myself. These are the kinds of things I'm looking for in my children. Is their understanding of God growing? Is it affecting the way that they behave? Do they long to read God's word? Uh, do they long to communicate to God in prayer? Do they love the fellowship of believers? Do they love the body of Christ? Am I modeling that? I've got to be very careful about how I speak about the body of Christ amongst my children. Even if the elders are driving me absolutely mad with some crazy decision they've made, I will not be expressing that in front of my children. 
I'll be showing them that I love the bride of Christ. As, as filthy as she is and how stupid as she sometimes can be, it is the bride for whom Christ died and I need to love her. Love her in fellowship, love her in service and call other people to love her too. And then I'm looking for a holistic approach with my children when it comes to their spiritual development. I think people respond differently to the gospel. I think children primarily respond emotionally to the person of Jesus. I think people can respond intellectually, and then there's volition. And I think that children growing up in a Christian community and in a Christian home, if you had to ask the child at the age of four, do you love Jesus? They say, I love Jesus. I think he's amazing. They don't understand it all, but they love Jesus. They don't always get it right in terms of their volition, their will, but they love Jesus. So we take it at face value. Perhaps that same child later on becomes a teenager and um, goes to a youth rally or something and makes some sort of commitment to Christ. And you say to yourself, hang on a second, I thought you already loved Jesus and now you're doing this. Well, it may well be that they've come to understand something about Jesus that didn't really make sense before, but now they feel they need to do something about that. So intellectual understanding. But, you know, they're teenagers. You know what teenagers are like. (laughs) Perhaps it's at university that he once again comes under the influence of a gospel in a way that causes him to change fundamentally. Perhaps his whole direction in life changes. Something, something changes. Now, as I've been saying this, those of you who've grown up in Christian homes, you would be able to resonate. I'm hoping that that kind of resonates with you. you sort of, I went through these phases. I, 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 underst- you know, I had limited understanding as a young child, but I love Jesus. I love being with God's people. And then you know, later on, I got a much better understanding. I understood substitutionary atonement. I could say it and understand it. And then later on, actually, it, it radically impacted the path of my life. Now, I want to say to those of you who, are, who, who didn't grow up in a Christian home, that, that, that likely, if you're a Christian today, you came to Christ because of some sort of crisis point in your life. That's normally what happens. In which case, all three of those things happen at the same time. You come to an understanding of the gospel, you love what God has done for you in the gospel, and you respond. Okay? That's normally what happens. And I think we've just got to be very, very careful of children who are growing up in our community, who are, who are growing up, as it were, with Jesus as the older sibling, that we don't try to create some sort of false crisis point in the life of the child to force a commitment to Christ, if, if you understand what I'm ta- saying there. Okay? Your children will be growing up with Jesus. That is going to be their experience. And it's going to be long, slow, patient discipleship as they learn gradually who Jesus is. Uh, my daughter's the older of the siblings. She knows a time when the boys didn't exist. She sometimes wishes that was still true. The boys have never known a time when Emma wasn't around. And there's a sense in which your children growing up in a Christian home will be growing up with Jesus. Jesus has always been in your home, I hope. I hope it's always been obvious that he's, that he's been at every single meal time, that he's been on every single holiday, that he's been every single time tears have been shed or someone's died or some, some wedding to celebrate. Jesus has been there. He's been present with you as a family. I hope that that's true, that that's obvious for your children. And so gradually they are coming to understand who Jesus is. And I think it's a wonderful testimony for children to be able to say that they have never, ever known a day when they have not known Jesus Christ as Lord. 
Our children don't have to give testimonies where they used to be drug dealers. You know those testimonies? Yeah? We emphasize how absolutely rotten someone was in order to show how wonderful grace God's grace is. I don't, I don't think we, we have to have that kind of testimony. I think it's wonderful if your children grow up and say, I never ever knew a day when I did not know and love Jesus. And they're going through this process. So just understand, for your children, this could be the process. Do they love Jesus? Do they understand what Jesus has done for them? Are they living the life that he's calling them to live? And for each of those stages, I'm trying to show them how my love for Jesus is connected to my obedience. So, so Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he's come to call the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Faith doesn't come from obedience. Obedience comes from faith. So I've got to show my children the connection. If you love Jesus, you trust Jesus. If you trust Jesus, you obey Jesus. Yeah? And the same, you know, so maybe a child is, maybe they stuck up a tree or something. They climbed up a tree. They don't know how to get down. They call for help. You come, you say, jump, I'll catch you. They say, they're a bit nervous. You say, I love you. I won't let you get hurt. Jump, I'll catch you. So because they know that I love them, they trust me, they obey me. For perhaps a teenager thinking about all these things about God and Jesus, and they've always got lots of questions, I say to them, what do you know about Jesus? Does what you know about Jesus cause you to trust him? If you trust him, will you obey him? And what do people need to know about Jesus? Well, there's only really two things I think you need to know about Jesus. The one is he can deal with your sin problem. The other thing is that he can deal with your death problem. I think beyond that, you don't need to know much more. Okay? So Martin says he's going to give me a lift tonight. What do I need to know about Martin? Well, where do I begin? I need to know that Martin's got a car that can drive. I need to know that Martin can drive. I don't need to know the color of the car. I don't need to make the make of the car. I don't need to know when it was last serviced. I don't need to know what the 0 to 100 spec is of the car. I just need to know two things. Does it drive? Can Martin drive? I say to people, same with Jesus. There's a lot that you don't need to know about Jesus. You just need to know two things about Jesus. You can deal with your death problem. You can deal with your sin problem. Get in the car with Jesus and you'll discover a lot along the way. You'll discover what kind of music he likes. In Martin's case, it's country and western. You discover all kinds of things about Jesus once you've got in the car. But get in the car. My big concern is sometimes uh, children who find themselves in that situation. So it's the compliant child who's basic. That's where Pharisees sit. They're always doing the right thing. But you don't actually know if there's a real love for Jesus or a real understanding of the gospel. So that's we've got to be quite careful with those kinds of people. But do you see what we're talking about here? It's the obedience that comes from faith. And then what I'm looking for in children is I'm looking for an age-appropriate repentance. Okay? So Zacchaeus says this in, Zacchaeus, uh, in, in Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, look here, and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That is not the kind of repentance you expect from a four-year-old. Okay? So what does age-appropriate repentance look like for a child? That's the question you've got to be asking yourself. In that moment when your child has been caught red-handed doing something, what does repentance look like for them? What does that look like for a child to show repentance, to model repentance? Quick story. There was a kid called Kyle. He was about 10 years old. He was in our youth group. 
uh, back in Krugersdorp days. And um, his mother came to me one Sunday and said, Why, uh, what did you teach on Friday at Kids Club? And I was sort of a little bit nervous when parents come to question you. You sort of want to know what is the question behind the question. She said, no, no, it's all good. Let me explain to you that Kyle had a very difficult relationship with his stepfather. They were always at each other's throats. And so Kyle, when he was at home, used to spend his life in his bedroom with a sign on the door that said no entry. Kyle came home on Friday evening and Penn tells me that what happened was she could see that he was trying really hard. He spent the evening with them and he was trying really hard not to take the bait, not to argue, just to be a much more compliant child and to try and keep the peace. And when she went to bed that night, she noticed that his door was standing open, so she decided to go in and check if he was okay. And the first thing she noticed was that this sign on the door that said no entry had been removed, and he'd made a new sign before he went to bed that said, all welcome. Do you think he's on drugs? (laughs) No, Penny, I don't think he's on drugs. My understanding is that probably I, I hadn't talked about your relationship with stepfathers on Friday. I said, my understanding is that he's probably understanding that being reconciled to God vertically and understanding the gospel means that he now needs to reach out and reconcile horizontally. And so what does repentance look like for a 10-year-old boy? Well, he changes the sign on the door. So you ask yourself the question, what does it look like for your child to repent? And then you ask the question, are they moving towards the cross or away from the cross? By their behavior, their actions, their words, their question, what, are they moving towards the cross Or they're moving away from the cross. Which direction are they going? What does that look like? That's what you're asking. We're going towards the cross or away from the cross. Okay? Two quick examples. I'm sorry that I'm using my own children. They're they're the ones that I'm most familiar with. Okay? When my daughter came to me at the age of eight and said, Dad, can I get a real Bible for Christmas? Okay, by that she meant one with just words and no pictures, the ones that we were using at Sunday school. I do three things. Okay? The first thing I do is I kick myself. Because when she outgrows her clothes, I buy her bigger clothes. I'd never thought that I should have bought her a bigger Bible. A bigger Bible. Okay? The second thing I do is I say, we don't have to wait for Christmas. A Bible is an everyday present. Let's go and choose one now. Would you like it to be pink or green or purple? Okay? The third thing I do is that in my mind, I say to myself, I've got an eight-year-old girl who's thirsting for God's word. What a joy. Isn't that a joy? Do I give her her Bible and do I glue the Song of Solomon together and say you can read that when I'm dead? I say, I'm delighted that you want to read God's Word. I'm delighted. And in my mind I say, I've got a child who wants to read God's Word. At the age of six, my son, we were on a ferry going, to, going on holiday in Europe. You know, it's wonderful. You can put a car on a boat. South Africans marvel at this, but it's, it's a true. It happens. And as the boat sort of moved off the dock, my son said, what if the ship sinks? I said, well, you know, it's a possibility. Uh, By the way, children by the age of about six or seven obsess about death. So I said to him, well, if we know Jesus and we love and know Jesus, then he's dealt with our sin problem, he'll deal with our death problem, yeah? We'll be okay. If we know Jesus. I always put the if in because I don't really know where he stands. If we know Jesus. So that was fine. That was good enough. A few weeks later, we were on a plane pushing back. When a, when a plane taxis to take off, it's very quiet. Have you noticed that? Everybody's very nervous. Aiden again. What if this plane crashes? 
loud enough for everybody to hear. And you can feel people's ears are sort of straining towards you because they want to hear the answer to this. I said, you know, you said that about the ferry a few weeks ago. I remember that. Can you remember what I said? He said, you, you said, if we know and love Jesus, it's not a problem because he's dealt with sin and he'll deal with our death. I said, what applies to boats applies to planes. Six months later, he's now seven. We're on a train. We're heading towards London. He's got his knees on the seat. He's looking out. He sees a cemetery. He says, what's that? I said, it's a cemetery. He says, what's that? I said, it's where they bury dead people. He says, you know, I used to be afraid of dying. I said, oh, really? He says, yes. I said, are you still afraid of dying? No. I said, and what's made the difference? He says, I know Jesus as my friend. He's dealt with my sin problem. He'll deal with my death problem. I'll be okay. Now, what do I do with that? What is that going to look like in 10 years' time? I've got no idea. But at that point in time, I've got a seven-year-old boy who believes that he can face death with confidence because of a relationship that he believes he has with Jesus. I'll take that to the bank. And I'll warmly encourage him on his spiritual walk. That's what I'm trying to do. He's moving towards the cross. Now, in the last ten years, there's been some bumps along the way. But by God's grace, he's requested baptism. And he continues to walk with Jesus. What was it going to look like for my daughter 10 years down the line when she asked for a Bible? Well, at the time, I don't know. But I warmly encourage her in her walk. And at the age of 21, soon, she, she continues to trust Jesus. And I don't take that for granted in any way. I never take that for granted. But I thank God that it's true. So finally, as we close, how can you connect with your children's ministry? Because you're in partnership with your church. And I hope you're leaning on your church. I hope you're seeing your church family as a partnership in bringing your children up. You're not trying to go lone ranger and do it solo. Please don't do that, okay? You're not meant to. You're meant to do it in partnership. Don't, don't, don't renege on your responsibility. Take your responsibility seriously, but recognize that you're part of a family. Okay? There'll come a time in your children's life when actually other Christian people, more mature, not more mature, older Christian people than your children actually will become very significant in your children's lives. Through those teenage years when they don't really want much to do with you, are there significant adults in the local church who will take them under their wing and, 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 and disciple them in that way? You need the church family for that. Okay? So, how do you do that? Well, the first thing, can you pray for the children's ministry team at your church? Could you do that? Do you even know who the people are who teach your children week by week? Do you know who they are? If you don't, then you should get to know who they are and you should pray for them and you should love them and you should thank them, express your appreciation to them. Okay? Secondly, can you please be regular in your attendance at church? Don't be these fair-weather Christians. Don't look out and say, oh, the weather's good. I think we'll go, we'll go out to the Vol or wherever we're going to go this weekend. Please don't be those kinds of people. Be people who commit that church is the priority. It is a standing commitment every single week at the same time, every single week of the year, unless you are out of the province. And we've seen people, when I was involved in children's ministry, yeah, we've seen people do this. You know, they buy the boat, go to the Vol for the weekend. Starts out, it's Friday afternoon, they're back Saturday, they're at church on Sunday. 
then eventually it's, ach, we, yeah, we may as well stay another day. We'll get back in time for the evening service. Not long, you don't see them at all, they're gone. Please don't be those people. Be people who come, who committed. You say every single Sunday we are to be found in church. There's nowhere else to be. Where else is there to be? This is the priority. It's a standing commitment every single week. Be regular in your attendance. Take an interest in the program. Work out what they've been, find out what they've been learning. Take an interest in the program. Not in a weird kind of way, but take an interest. Try to reinforce that lesson at home. Okay, that means that you may read the passage that they've just learnt on a Sunday. Maybe on a Wednesday evening, read the passage. Can we remember what we learnt on Sunday? Set them up for the week ahead. You know, if you're not regular in your tenets, it's really hard for your kids to, to understand a series. You know, in this church, we, we, you teach through in a systematic way. There's a series. You're building one week on the next. It doesn't help if you're at the Vol every other week, okay? Ask for help. You've got people here. You've got children's workers here. They're here to help you. Say, I, I, I'm, I, am my kid struggling with this? Is there a book I can read? Can you recommend something? They're asking these questions. What can you recommend? Is there an article? Can you point me to a website? I need help to answer my children's questions. But take a proactive role there. I had a woman at our church who came to me one morning. She said, you know, um, uh, uh, Kieran asked a question this week. It's a Bible question. And um, I said, he should ask you the answer. I said, oh really, what did he ask? Because she told me what he asked. So I said, I'm so glad I now know what the question was, because I will definitely not be answering that question today. What do you mean? I said, he asked it on your time, you must answer it. If he asked it on my time, fine, but he asked it on your time, you answer it. I don't know the answer. I said, is that what you say when your boss asks you to do something at work that you've never done before? No. I said, what do you do? She says, I go and find out how to do it. I said, well, there you go. I said, I'm hesitant to tell you to go and Google the answer for something theological. But if you ask me, I'll point you in the direction of a book or an article. Wouldn't you like to know the answer to that question? I would. I said, this is a golden opportunity for you to grow in your understanding of Jesus as you teach your child. So ask for help, but take responsibility. Inform the group, the team, if there's some domestic issues. Now, we're not wanting to let the whole thing hang out, but, you know, if, if there's been some struggles, there's been a bereavement in the family, something, someone's not well, you've heard some sad news, it affects the behavior of the child in the group. Inform them so we can, we can help and assist uh, in, in whatever way we can. Prepare your family for corporate worship on a Sunday. Prepare them. Get their minds ready for the fact that we are coming together as God's family to worship God corporately. What does the hour before church look like in your household? What does that look like? Yeah? Where is your other shoe? Yeah? You don't, what do you mean you don't have clean clothes? My friends, this should all have been sorted out the night before. Okay? You should have got your children to bed early. Don't party all night on a Saturday. Get them to bed early because tomorrow is corporate worship. What does the drive over to church look like? Are you coming in on two wheels in the parking lot because you're late? And those of you who live closest to the late church are always the latest. What is wrong with you? The further you live from church, the earlier you are. We've got people who are consistently late. I want to, I want to go into their house and I want to change their clocks by five minutes. 
You're coming to worship God together. What does that look like? Have you got your children in that frame of mind? Who could we encourage today? Who could we invite for lunch today? Who could we get to know better today? Church is not about you. It's about the body of Christ. Could you make yourself accountable? Could you have a group? Could you say, look, I'm really struggling in my relationship with my teenager. Could you help me? Could you pray for me? Could you hold me accountable in my relationship with my children? Could you ask me, are you reading the Bible with your children? Could you ask me, are you spending time with your children? Could you ask me, are you praying with your children? Are you praying for your children? Make yourself accountable. And finally, will you pray? Parenting begins on your knees. It continues on your knees. And it's going to end on your knees. Because what you've been called to do is you're being called to take aim. And once that arrow leaves, you've got to pray that God makes it hit the mark. That's what you've got to do. But please take the responsibility to aim. Don't do this and pray that it's going to hit the target. It's never going to happen. It's your responsibility. Could you do those things? I'm going to stop. Shall I pray? And then um, if there's any comments or questions, we can discuss those. Lord God, we thank you that we can speak tonight to our Heavenly Father, who is perfect and righteous and true, and who is self-sacrificial, and who acts for our best interests. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the promise that you change lives for all eternity. We thank you for the joy of children, the gift that they are to us. We pray that you would help us to take very seriously the mandate which you've given to us, that you'd help us by your grace to model repentance and faith, to keep our children, to give our children ready access to the people of God and the word of God, that they may grow to know and love Jesus. Father, would you help us to do that? Would you pray for our church? We pray that you would help us to work in partnership, that we may bring up young people who know and love Jesus and to call others to do the same. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.